0: about wildlife is that it the thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife is feeling of interconnectedness that it's humbling is that it's It's insightful intriguing you belong it's about all of us always evokes a sense of wonder doesn't matter why you're here that's the thing about wildlife
1: Hello there, listeners. I am Mishika, your host on The Thing About Wildlife. Welcome back to our new series, The Thing About Pride. These are episodes showcasing the work and lived experiences of queer or LGBTQIA plus identifying persons in the fields of ecology and conservation. On our fourth episode, I bring to you a professional diver and marine biologist turned queer affirmative sex educator Tanisha RK. This was an episode that rang close to home in multiple ways, as Tanisha and I first began our foray into the realms of wildlife and conservation together several years ago, although our journeys have carried us along very different waves in the last decade. In our conversation today, we navigate those waters and reflect upon how our individual identities, sexualities, gender, and caste positionings can define the specific challenges and opportunities we face in ecological fields. The Nisha co-founded Sangya Project and is currently its Chief of Social Voice, helping people navigate the little-known world of sexual health and pleasure in a truly sensitive and inclusive manner. They speak of how they continue to draw inspiration from nature and its myriad alternate sexualities and empathy to work towards personal calm and building more compassionate human communities. Here's the episode now, The Thing About Risky Waters. Hi, Tanisha. Welcome to The Thing About Wildlife. I'm very excited that we're finally able to do this. And we have 12 years of experiences to get through today, minimum, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) because we've known each other for that long. And uh, you are also a big part of why I got into this field. So there is a lot of stuff to unpack. And I'm excited to also know more about you, because even though I feel like I know a lot about you, I'm sure there's a lot I don't know about you. And uh, yeah, I'm very, very keen to dig into all of it. So welcome.
0: Thank you for having me. I am I think um, I've done different versions of this conversation with a lot of people before as well, but I don't think I've ever had it with someone who's actually in the field of wildlife conservation and ecology. So. Um, i haven't had the chance to really dig into my personal experiences from that lens in a very long time outside of my conversations with you and uh, yeah i think that's why i'm really excited about this chance as well because it's it's giving me an opportunity to process a lot of things that i couldn't do before
1: yeah i think uh, we have a lot of ground to cover so i'm going to get right into it for sure and i'm going to start with a very fundamental question of just where that first interest in the natural world, in zoology, in any form of wildlife first developed. Take us back to even before we met and tell me a little bit more about your first interactions with the natural world and what it is that made you decide to do that zoology degree at St. Xavier's College. Um
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. I don't think there was anything specific that started the curiosity because I think all the kids just naturally have that um, curiosity about everything around them. And I was just another one of those kids. Um, but, but what was different in my case versus a lot of other people was that I was raised by adults who didn't shut that curiosity down or um, discourage it or mock it in any way. You know, so if I had questions about nature or the environment, then I had parents and a sister who would either already have those answers for me, or they would take a step back, look for books and videos that would have the answers for me and then sort of learn with me. Um, And I think that played a huge role in allowing me to have that relationship with nature because just nobody said, oh, this is such a silly thing to be interested in. Um, So in that sense, I always felt a bond. Um, and I think family history also then played a very strong relationship with why I specifically became interested in um, not just marine animals but I would say any coastal animals um, in India because um, I uh, am from a Bahujan family, our family has a history of uh, growing up and, and living in coastal communities and um, that tradition of sort of always being by the sea and having a strong connection to water has uh, continued through every generation. And, you know, it's and it's a part of your caste identity. I feel like it's more than just a conversation you have from time to time. It's in the way you tend to dress. It's in the way you tend to travel. It's in the food you eat. Um, and so I just grew up in that culture of continuously seeing what a strong bond I have with the sea. And my father was in the Merchant Navy. He thought it was very important to make sure his kids could swim from a very early age. So that bond was always there. And uh, yeah, I think um, because that curiosity and that desire to be close to the ocean was always there and encouraged in my family, I think it just really really took off as I grew older and you know I um yeah <laughs> I think that's that's just always been there
1: Thanks for bringing that uh, perspective in a lot because I feel like we don't talk about some of those very deeply cultural influences enough I think very often we try very hard to pinpoint like say a summer camp we went to or like a singular trigger point or a turning point where a nascent interest suddenly develops or blossoms and sometimes that is true sometimes you know there are those big one-stop life events that kind of drop in your lap out of nowhere and say okay this is what I want to do but this is so important the fact that on a day-to-day basis there can be something that's so inherent and so close to heart and home that it just very organically leads you to where you kind of want to go. Um, So along that journey of figuring some of those things out and just very naturally turning towards those interests, and like you said, it's also so important to not have them thwarted, uh, you know, when that natural curiosity exists. Where along that path was your own self-discovery in terms of your identity, your sexuality, your gender? How did that start playing a role in your life? And along what part of you figuring out maybe you wanted to go towards zoology and continue exploring your curiosity for nature and biological spaces? Um, Along what point did you start looking inwards and thinking about yourself?
0: I think... I think that's also something that I felt from a very early age because um, I think, one, with the whole caste angle, right? And two, also with um, generally being someone who feels um, very connected to nature, uh, you sometimes do encounter environments where you're rejected or your social environment, you know, treats you as a little bit of a nerd and a little bit of a misfit because you have these interests that the other kids may not be um, may not have the space to engage with or discover on their own. So I think there was just a degree of separation even in my early social experiences where I was reading things and, and consuming um, media and documentaries that um, a lot of my friends at that age did not necessarily have access to. I also think that, again, because of my identity and because of these experiences, um, I found it very difficult to sort of understand some of the rules and expectations of what is considered appropriate social behavior and appropriate interactions between men and women. And, you know, it just, it made the entire socializing process very confusing and tedious for me because... When there were conversations about men versus women and how, you know, differently they engage with each other and interact um, in society, that threw me off because I didn't find myself really identifying with either bubble. Um, so I spent a lot of my life just sort of shuttling between those groups, wondering which one is a better fit for me, because neither of them is the perfect fit. So I'll settle for the less, uh, least uncomfortable one. and um, That also then put me in this position where I was constantly second-guessing my connections to other people, my friendships, my relationships, and, you know, what intimacy and connection really mean to me, and I think simultaneously to be in this environment where I'm constantly being given uh, books and um, videos about nature, where I can see that the animal world doesn't have these kinds of rules and regulations on who can touch whom and how to show intimacy, um, and when is the appropriate time to show intimacy, was just very freeing in that sense, because it suddenly felt like I was observing a world where there was potential for... Um, individuals to discover their connection to each other or their connection to the rest of the community in their own ways as opposed to just having these arbitrary rules on how to talk when to talk what happens on a third date and all of these other bizarre um, rules that just never made sense to me and I think that's also why then I found so much more comfort in the animal kingdom and became more curious about them because while I could see a world that felt more free of the social expectations. Um, As I grew older and got more um, exposure to academic texts, I would then be met with very formal language that would insist on these very, um, you know, tight boxes of heterosexual relationships in the animal kingdom as well and how what pairings would look like and what family structures would look like and that would just be very confusing to me because I would be like, are you you sure that that's the norm every time, everywhere, every animal species because we're looking at them and sometimes that doesn't add up, that's not necessarily the case and then you know every once in a while you would see these articles about um, gay animals raising um, babies together and wonder, oh, what an anomaly this is happening once in a lifetime, never going to happen again for the rest of our lives. But then another article would pop up a few weeks later. Um, So I, I think that fascination just then made me take a step back and say, what if I, in the human world, am not as much of a minority or an anomaly as I've allowed myself to think? Because I have this going feeling that even in the animal kingdom, it's not that rare for intimacy and connection to be more free-flowing and and less boxed into these um, very fixed rules. And yeah, I think that's how the bond between me discovering myself and and using nature to fuel that journey just kept getting stronger over the years. I really love that you
1: brought that in and that you actually actively have been drawing inspiration from Alternate sexualities in the animal kingdom from that early age because I know that that's something that you and I have come back to and spoken about repeatedly and we've both probably been obsessed with it at different times in terms of just reading and knowing more and you're so right because there is there are tons hundreds of examples of uh, alternate sexualities documented in the natural world and we continue pretending like it is that anomaly, like it is an outlier, wherein, in reality, pretty much, you know, we have now I think about 600 species where we have surefire documented um, alternate sexualities, uh, right? So, the fact that we continue to say that, no, this is just a one off thing, uh, kind of just continues to follow that heteronormative narrative that we have even for people and human beings. So the fact that you have been questioning that from even before you actively engaged with either side of things, you know, both in terms of your queerness as well as a career potentially with the marine space. Um, I think that's that's quite incredible and quite cool. Um, So, going from there, you know, to actually starting to engage with the space of ecology, wildlife, biology, in a more hands-on way, coming to some of the volunteering that you did, some of the internships that you did in those early years. uh, Those were also the years which were the time when you were actively experiencing queerness in your day-to-day not just questioning it where you were actively participating in uh social events that allowed you to be queer you were looking at you um you know had other peers who were also queer and these were now part of conversation they were part of lived experiences so what was that like for you to be entering and navigating both those spaces at once because you were essentially getting to now experience things that you had theoretically been thinking about for a long time.
0: I think um, when I was studying in any of the institutions that I was, right, and um, I had started embracing my queerness anyway, um, there was already a sense of conflict because on the one hand, there is a sense of, freedom when you're studying in a space where no one necessarily like knows your birth family so you're just like I can be myself and nobody's going to pick up the phone and tell my parents because you know that connection to the other world is just not there so there was that freeness to sort of just be myself and figure out who I wanted to be while also feeling this immense pressure because suddenly there was this very weird spotlight on you and and your choices and what you were doing with your relationships. Um, So that also makes you feel very exposed and vulnerable and, and then makes you want to go back to being reserved and sort of maintain that privacy for yourself. So I already felt that sort of those conflicting emotions, I think when I was studying, but then to get into actually working and getting work X in the conservation sector just made that sense of conflict so much stronger because now I was living in remote regions where while it was still freeing to find even more people with lesser contact to, you know, um, anyone back home and and outing me before I had the chance to come out myself, etc. There was also the fear of, oh, but I'm now so far away from home that I may not be able to handle things as effectively. If something does go awry, or something bad does happen to me here. Um, and I think so that just made that internal sense of conflict so much stronger because I could be any version of me that I wanted to be um, while I was building this entire new community with my uh, for myself in this you know remote location, meeting new people from across the country, um, meeting locals who I would then be building an entire um, plan with and working with to make sure that they can look after their environments in the way they actually want to Um, but then simultaneously knowing that there'd be so many parts of myself I would just have to leave behind or hide under the covers while navigating those new relationships it was just terrifying Um, and I think in my case also because I'd had I'd had little to no experience with being in such remote locations um, before graduation, right? So for me to suddenly be so far away from the kind of access I had been used to having in cities um, was very jarring. Because I think living in a city like Bombay gave me the comfort of knowing that if anything bad ever happened... I knew what medical services I could trust. I knew what mental health professionals I could contact, even though I'd never spoken to them before. Um, I knew all the ways to travel in and out. All of that was there. That comfort and familiarity was there. But then to be in someone else's world and someone else's environment and still be asked to you know own your identity and own your sexuality was just a disaster the striking balance in someone else's world where you don't know what your mental health support and medical support could look like or logistically how you're going to travel and protect yourself in like a timely fashion is is just such an unrealistic expectation for the world to put on us I think
1: yeah, It can be such an overwhelming experience and I think some of this even I'm realizing in retrospect, wherein when we were there in that moment doing these first time internships, it was also just such an incredible world to be exposed to suddenly because we've seen crocodiles in documentaries and suddenly now we're handling them, right? I mean, there was so much that was happening and unraveling by the minute and so many rich experiences that were also... Forming these core memories upon which we are then going to go ahead and build a career, right? Or every other kind of experience. While at Mm -hmm. the same time, so much is happening internally. And those fears are very real, like you were saying. And so there is no, There are no experiences to draw from at this point in terms of how to navigate being in the closet and also experience queerness and also actually have those slightly more academic and career-oriented experiences. So that is true. And a lot of it, I think, has come in in terms of retrospective processing. And sometimes I wonder how we just kept it together and managed to navigate all of that in real time, <laughs> which is kind yeah. quite- quite incredible yeah i think
0: also to sort of um add to what those experiences were like right um you're already fairly vulnerable when you've been identified as like the feminine person of the group i mean obviously um the the word that i would go for is woman here you're assumed to be a woman um in your case you are a woman in this sector for me it was an inappropriate label being put on me, but still I was identified as more of a feminine person. Um, So already a very odd kind of um, spotlight has been placed on us while also completely erasing our voices in those spaces. Um, And based on my very specific experiences, it felt like one, I did not have um, the agency or power to sort of decide what my um, socializing or what my bonding with my peers would look like. Um, A lot of it was already norm that was established in that workspace before I entered it. And I was expected to modify my behavior to fit in to that kind of concept or that culture, Um, which meant that there were certain workspaces where, you know, um, the workforce was primarily men, Um, A lot of their idea of bonding was to sort of, you know, travel to the nearest bar together and have some drinks or bring, bring drinks back home. And that, of course, was a strange environment for me because I was, what, like 19, 20 at the time. These are men that I've just met. How comfortable do you expect me to be, you know, around you and just have whiskey after whiskey? And... It's the littlest things, right? Because if you buy a whiskey and I buy some other like light-colored alcohol, you're going to tease me for being a lightweight. Um, so I'm expected then to pull off this social experience by drinking the same liquor that you do, by probably drinking as heavily as you do that night um, and still not being afraid for my life because you think that I should just inherently know that this is a safe space and a safe environment. But I know that anything could go wrong. Um, for so many of those men on those nights, their worst nightmare was probably how do I go from this table where I'm drinking back to my room or back to my cottage where my bags are and where my things are. And I'm just sitting there going, I don't know what happens when you put your last drink down. I don't know if I want to be in the room when that happens, you know. Um, so that ability to gauge how safety is defined so very differently um, for everyone Was just not there in a lot of the spaces that I did work in and I think um, that pressure also made me very very aware of um, how isolated and alone I felt um, in some of the places that I worked at and on the plus side I think that made my ability to bond with the locals a little higher because I was like you are not going to expect me to sit and have a drink with you you literally just want to know what language I speak at home and you want to feed me your food because you're just excited to bond in a way that you are used to bonding with people you know all i have to do is not be arrogant and and entitled in any way and be respectful about the fact that this is your space and you will just be so fucking cooperative yeah so i think recognizing that it wouldn't always be easy to fit in with the work culture wherever i was working. Um, did build my skills at um, bonding with the locals and um, immersing myself in their culture a little better. Um, But it also made me draw a lot of parallels with what life looks like back in the city, um, what expressing my identity looks like in different languages, different microcultures and different spaces in India. And that also then made that Um, journey and that conflict feels so much more intense and dramatic because you know um, I'm sitting there being misidentified in work conversations or being um, dismissed and having um, peers who assume that I can't do a certain amount of weightlifting or take a certain number of risks simply because you know I'm a fragile feminine person etc and the stakes are just so completely different in my head. I'm just sitting here saying, you don't trust me to pick up a reptile, but I've left all sense of safety behind in my big city life. And I've come here and you don't recognize the kind of nerve it's taken for any of us to do something of that sort. But you think that I'm terrified that picking up a reptile or you know stepping into a reptile enclosure will be the scariest thing I do today. Please take a step back. you having that beer in my face is actually scarier to me than me cuddling with that reptile. please calm down so um, yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, Yeah, I think what you also very beautifully brought out is just how many layers there are to the vulnerability that different individuals face in this field. I mean, there is your age, there is your gender identity, there is how you're perceived and what gender stereotypes people think you fit. And there is already inherent sexism because even before the heteronormativity in the field there's also a lot of patriarchy and macho conservationism and you know those kind of ideals that play a huge role in terms of just how safe even a cis identifying woman is in the field uh, regardless of what their sexuality may be and so uh, that is something that I know you and I had to face very actively that first time that we went to Madras and we did that internship because we were there having like you said we had so much at stake we left all of that stuff and we were ready to deal with the social side of things and do what it took to be there because what we really wanted was that experience of interacting with these species and learning and having that hands-on experience and even before we could articulate that this is something we wanted to do, there were days where we were uh, literally only assigned tasks which were meant for quote unquote women, uh, oh. right, like cleaning of enclosures and, you know, clearing out stuff or very, basically very safe tasks that didn't really involve anything particularly exciting for us in terms of being able to have those experiences that we had come there for and or even interact with the animals we were there to interact with in many cases right or we were just made to interact with tourists at times and just put on our pretty faces right so um, I think the moment we caught on to that and we realized that okay no there is some real sexism at play here And we actually, uh, I think uh, we were angry enough to actually do something about it at that time, which I'm really happy, glad we did, because it meant we could actually have some real experiences while we were there. Even though it was really sad that it had to come from us and that initial assumption was that, no, they are just women. They would not want to do these things or maybe they're incapable of doing those things. And that was definitely a really hard truth to face. And then you layer on top of that sexuality and gender expression and how much you're navigating in that space. Um, it, It can really, really amount to a lot. But I also think having said that, one thing that did genuinely keep us going was the work itself. Right? The fact that yeah. every morning we woke up and while there were people to deal with and those spaces to navigate, we still ended up managing to spend a big chunk of our time doing some really cool stuff, both in Madras as well and later in Goa as well. So I also want you to tell me a little bit more about what that was like. What was it like to start interacting with these species? What was the work that you did? over there? And what was that experience like for you?
0: I think um, I'll start with the the Madras work first. I think uh, I think I found a lot of um, softness and patience in myself, even though it felt like the environment was Um, sort of pushing me to be so much more macho just to prove that I could handle the weight of some of those tasks simply because um, there was so much hands-on work with the reptiles, right? Um, Handling the uh, snakes during feeding, handling um, the hygiene levels of the uh, croc enclosures as well, um, observing them and their uh, what was considered to be undocumented um, parental behaviors unravelling in front of us there was just I think it was me learning very quickly that what I had learned to accept as the norm in the city where there's just a constant hustle and and rush to everything and you're just running through life with absolutely no end in sight um I think Working in Chennai just sort of changed that. I don't know if you remember, but I used to be really bad at being able to spot any birds because I just could not catch their movements. I couldn't see anything, any kind of movement in the distance just felt like vague tree movements to my eye, right? I did not have that eye at all. And it's only with sitting with you and learning to just be quiet and be calm and be still that my eyes learned to recognize the difference between a leaf moving because of the wind and a bird secretly hopping between branches. Like it's so easy now, mm-hmm. even though I'm not good at IDing, for me to recognize that there is a bird somewhere there, or if it's not a bird and it's actually just a squirrel. Mm-hmm. Um, that Those little um, differences became very evident to me. And that is something that I'm very grateful for because I think... I don't know if this is going to sound a little um, spiritual or something, but um, I feel like life in the city or even studying in these big institutes um, didn't really give me a chance to connect with myself or be still with myself um, at any point. I felt a very different kind of robotic need to be on survival mode nonstop Um, when I was working in the city or studying in the city and that just meant that to be effective at my job or effective with the degree I was studying I had to disconnect from my body and not really have a relationship with it at all so that I could get everything on my task list done Um, and then my very first job just laughed in my face for all of those skills that i've been i built over time because it was just like you are not going to be able to read the situation if you do not get in touch with your body or if you can't handle the tiniest element of distress and and chaos in your hands or in your body then the animals are going to sense it and they will not trust you you know um and i think that also then um, made the entire experience so fulfilling for me because i had to make my entire body seem capable of stillness and calm and and be actually trustworthy for the, the animals around me to calm down and come out of their hiding spots and say okay you're clearly not a threat you're still strange but you know you're just minding your own business so I'm going to mind my own business and do my own thing and that's how I would see lizards feeding that's how I would watch the snakes uh feeding or taking care of their young as well and I think that, I would say, was the plus point of um, the Madras job specifically, because that was the first chance I had to see um, what you stand to gain when you are capable of finding stillness and calm within yourself, because it's like the entire environment around you can sense that in you, and it just goes back to minding its own business and existing and taking up all its space and all of its glory and you get the opportunity to just witness all of that because you allowed yourself those three minutes of calm, which clearly my dog is incapable of. Um, but uh, yeah, that I think was the beauty of the first job. Uh, with Goa, I think um, we were working with um, studying dolphin um, patterns and recognizing what kind of relationships they built over time with the tourist boats. in. Um, in the state, um, I think because that wasn't um, man-made enclosures, it was a more interesting opportunity to observe what kind of relationships humans can build with um, the environment around them. And I think it was also very interesting to then see the role that um, politics and the economy plays play um, in this entire journey as well, because. Um, The relationships of indigenous people with the environment that they live in is is very violently and brutally defined by their economic condition and by their access to um, resources and their access to control in their everyday politics as well. So I think um, Goa was the starting point for us to um, really recognize that and observe that as well. And I think we got very lucky with the team that we were working with there because... Everyone that we worked with there also had experience in um, bringing that sort of nuance in um, while studying uh, animal-human relationships and conflicts. And that really helped. Um, I think that is when it was, it, I think it, it really taught me um, how little I actually knew and understood um despite having a degree and how no number of degrees would actually help me um, fully understand that environment if I didn't learn to take a a step back and just listen to the people who actually have lived there for generations and have generations worth of wisdom about their own environment and everything that has changed over the years and brought them to the point where they actually are. Um, So yeah, Goa was a a great... um, chance for that and again because I have a bias for being by the sea I think that just made um, my I think it fueled my observations or my ability to observe that environment as well because um, I already had certain (laughs) connections to the sea and certain um, stereotypes in my head as well and it was interesting to uh, engage with a community very different from mine and learn from them Um, how historically they had built a relationship with the sea as well and how I shouldn't project my ideas onto them.
1: I think what you were saying about finding that stillness when you go into these spaces is very, very true for me as well because you kind of replace one form of safety with another when you go into these places and like you were saying, move so far away from home. Because amid that chaos, you still have to survive, but now you have to survive under a completely different set of conditions. And the requirements of you, depending on where you are and the work you're doing, are also very different because you're not just kind of at home, sleeping, eating, going to college, coming back, or going to work and coming back, but you're actually living and breathing your work when you're going to these places. And so... I think with those boundaries becoming fuzzier and with a few newer things to be concerned about coming into play, there are also some of these other things that allow you to reconnect with parts of yourself that you really don't get to reconnect with when you're back home. And um, I think the way that you mentioned the fact that your own stillness affected how the animals around you interacted with you and reacted to you and responded to you, I think that's... um, that's so interesting and such an such a lovely insight to actually bring into play. But tell us a little bit more about your relationship with the sea as well, because speaking of Goa, that is where you also did your dive master training. You went underwater. You spent so many hours and hours and hours underwater, and I really want to hear what that it was like for you and just your time diving you know doing those things because even though you were extremely busy and you were working at the dive shop and you had some of those responsibilities you were also genuinely getting to literally be in the water for those extended periods of time which is something you knew you wanted to do for ages and then you were actually doing that and you were working extremely hard waking up at ungodly hours going putting in the hours and putting in the work needed because you got to be underwater and it gave you that i want to know more about that from you also because i attribute every little bit of my love for the marine world to you and anyone who's been listening to this podcast over time knows how Extremely excited, I get everyone I have anytime I have someone from the marine sphere on the podcast because it's uh, you know, it, it. I still wonder whether I want to return to the sea and continue doing that kind of work just because of how much it meant to me and how much I utterly loved being in that space and learning more and more about that space. And you were the first person to give me a nudge or like actually quite literally push me off a boat and into the water (laughs) (laughs) but um, but yeah talk talk to us about the sea and everything that lies underneath it and within it
0: I think again this is something that um, I'm so glad um, Madras and Goa were my first two jobs uh, because of this right Um, reptiles and fish I think get such little credit when it comes to their ability to form bonds or their intelligence and their communication and expression and I was absolutely one of the people who you know based my entire understanding on just papers alone and said huh like what level of you know social depth and intelligence can I expect from this world. Um, I was absolutely one of those people but um, I think working with them directly when you have a chance to work with them in an enclosure where you are cleaning up their spaces or feeding them directly. And, um, you know, over time you realize that, oh, I've cracked the code to making sure this tortoise never bites me again. Um, Or like, I have figured out exactly how to hold the snakes so he knows the difference between an aggressive grip and a safe one. Um, those little things really helped me feel like I was building a bond with them like there were um, enclosures that became progressively easier for me to enter and do my work in because even if I did make a certain amount of noise or um, slip up and take a step too close those specific individuals had met me enough times to sort of just give me this very casual glance like oh it's you know, look at Tanisha just being Tanisha, and I think that recognition also meant a lot to me because then it that I think that um, hierarchy of I'm an intelligent human um, observing this lowly animal was completely broken, and it just became peers hanging out where I was just like, let me feed you because to some extent your life is in my hands, and they're just like, I won't bite you because your life is definitely in my hands. <laughs> Um, and I think that was just um, a lot of fun to uh, navigate and and sort of figure out for myself, um, recognizing that certain birds were just hanging out in the spaces that I was in because they knew that once the crocodiles were done eating, they would get left over meat and bone to um, feed on those kinds of um, relationships that everyone had with everyone else and somehow those relationships still had room for me to enter and, and be a part of as long as I promise to not bring too much chaos and distress with me. Um, I think that was very um, humbling for me to be a part of as well. And um, with the diving, I would say, um, I think I think the diving was less about recognizing intelligence and, again, feeling a very strong sense of um, intimacy. Um, because, like I said, right, when you're working with indigenous communities, and in my case, there was a big um, language barrier as well, because um, I was first working with an entirely Tamil-speaking community that could not always get through to me and did not understand how to make their um, words clearer to me because I just did not understand Tamil. And then in the second uh, environment, there was so much Konkani that I was just missing out on and not fully understanding. Um, But to still see that intimacy and safety are being communicated through these actions of let me feed you or you know, leave at so-and-so hour tomorrow morning and I can drive you to this location or I can pick you up or don't go here at this hour. Don't wear this when you go to this particular part because it'll be risky or you'll get bitten, um, stuff like that. Um, I think those different actions also changed the way I would ordinarily define intimacy and connection and safety just between humans. Um And I think when I was diving, because I was underwater and so literally out of my element and felt like my safety was just not necessarily completely in my hands and that the sea did have some control over me and what my morning would look like. um, To be so out of my depth and then just realize that there is this particular fish that lives in this particular part of a shipwreck, And every morning, he actually has this habit of hiding and not coming out because he knows that the divers will be there. But he also recognizes that me and my instructor specifically are quiet enough and calm enough to just hang about by that part of the ship and not cause any distress. So when it's just the two of us, he will come out and say hi. That just, it destroyed me. I was just like, first of all, I'm a human being. Why would you trust me? Please don't trust me so easily. And he was just like, No, I see you every day. Hi. And he would just do this little <laughs> dance around my instructor's hand. Um, and I think because I always went to that specific part of the shipwreck with my instructor, um, I think the fish started trusting me by extension um and got a little comfortable with swimming really close to my face on my hands as well. Um, yeah, and I think that just completely changed the the way I was um initially defining intelligence and intimacy um for myself as well because how is this not intimate you know how can you not say that there is a deep bond being formed when an animal sees you in its environment recognizes you as an outsider um recognizes that there is so much um of a threat that you bring to its space and to its life and still just allows you to be there and sometimes even shows you how to be there. Like we've seen cases of this, we've seen animals getting so used to, you know, divers and swimmers that they take them back to their very specific hideouts and show them what um, you know, what kind of food they eat and what kind of little shells they live in. And I think that um natural desire to just meet an outsider and say hi come 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 come. let me show you my life I trust you now so I will show you my life and then you show me yours um it's just so strong and then it's so weird to come out of the water and go back to being part of a strictly human world where there were just so many rules and regulations on what is appropriate and not appropriate behavior and that just it made me so angry (laughs) It made me so angry and frustrated because I think the natural world just showed me so much about what life can be like and what life can feel like. And then to come back into the human world and recognize that I will be treated differently because I'm queer and because I have a different caste status. Like these are things that matter to you. But when I'm in the ocean, my fish buddies just want to make sure that I'm not going to disturb their shipwreck and I'm not going to muck about the sand. And then I'm going to watch them eat quietly, not steal their food, and yet there is a chance that one of them will come and like leave some food near me because they think I'm a fish that's bad at hunting or something. <laughs> like, but I can have that. When you are telling me this is the level of emotion and and connection we're capable of, why have you given me this world where humans are just not trying? I think yeah, it just it it. I think it made my um relationship with the human world feel more um, full of anger and frustration because I recognize just how much work we still have to do back here.
1: I wound up so much while you were talking about that because, yeah, there is so much intimacy when we are working with our study species. I think it's uh, it was really beautiful to hear it in the context of actually being underwater and that you actually... Used to interact with the same individual fish every day, and that they came to trust you like that. That's incredible because I feel like we tell some of those stories in the terrestrial world, right? When we talk about elephants and monkeys, and you know, there are um, there are those cases, but you never really hear of it in these spaces. And there is that immediate cognitive dissonance that comes in where you're like, "Wait, what? Really? Did that? Did that happen?" And yeah, I think that is that is amazing. <laughs> it really does make you think about just that sudden uh, imposed binary that we live in where you have your world in the field where you're doing your work and you're interacting and it's it's beautiful, it's enriching, it's wholesome. It's everything you want, but then you are forced to return in whatever capacity, to the world outside of that bubble. And that can be so jarring when it happens on a day-to-day basis because I think especially when you're in the field and that's probably um, why this particular intersection of being queer in the wildlife spaces, um, why it makes people so vulnerable and it can have such repercussions on safety and mental health also because you're continuously navigating that and you're doing it when you're at different levels of being inside or outside the closet as well and that can be a lot um but I'm really glad you also brought in that bit of nuance of having to shuttle between those two worlds because what I also want to ask you about is um where you're at right now because you have switched fields and you're now in a space and in a career where your queerness and your gender identity, your sexuality, your caste identity, all of it plays in a very real way into your everyday tasks at your job and the intersection there is extremely strong and they feed off of one another. And when you were in the wildlife space and when you were doing that, there, like you said, and I think you've really nicely brought that out a couple of times already about where that intersection has been and where you've drawn parallels between your identity and with what you're doing. And sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's academic, sometimes it's purely theoretical or observational. But now you're also doing... something where you get to be openly queer and bring that in a lot more actively into your day-to-day. So what has that been like for you to shift into a space where you get that? You know, what have you gained? What have you maybe even lost out in that process? And how is this intersection where you're at right now different from what it was like when you were working in the marine space? I think...
0: um... Before I talk about what the experience has really been like, I think I want to talk about um, why that change really happened and what led to me um, shifting careers the way I did and why I've also mentioned safety and intimacy as aggressively as I have in this entire conversation. Um, Once I realized that marine biology is definitely something that um, I want to study, I uh, Signed. I got into this um, master's degree in Australia that I was doing in 2017, and um, obviously, right, um, leaving the country to study for a degree as big as your master's, it's a very transformative um, chapter in your life. There's a lot of planning that goes into it. There's a lot of financial prep that goes into it. It's a very hectic and overwhelming but also um, exciting time because this would mean I would be staying so close to the reef I would genuinely have um, like the humpback whales swimming past me during um, their migratory periods etc so there was a lot of um, excitement there for sure but again this is where I think the human definitions of what um, bonding and fitting in looks like can add to so much stress um, in this environment and make this entire profession um, so inaccessible or so difficult to survive for a lot of people. Um, like, for example, um, the uni that I was studying in was um, had primarily white people who were either local Australians or they were mostly Americans and Canadians who had come for um, the same master's degree that I had. Um, already there's a lot of cultural differences already there's a lot of um, language barriers as well because even though even if you are speaking English fluently a lot of the daily slang a lot of the way you use the English language can still differ from the way um, a white person uses it so I think those differences and that pressure to now you know, go from trying to fit into these little micro communities in India and getting them to see me as less of an outsider to the amplified pressures of being a visible outsider where you're just a brown person in a sea of white trying so hard to fit in while also not lose your identity and lose everything that in, like built the foundation of you. Um, so you're choosing between, you know, developing an accent so you don't get verbally recognized as an outsider, or holding on to your usual speech because you just want to be you and not give up your Indianness in the way you speak to these white people. Um, there's a, it was a very um, intricate dance I felt in striking that balance, and unfortunately, this was yet another environment where a lot of the concept of social bonding involved alcohol. To add a little more nuance to this conversation, by this point I was quite depressed and dealing with a lot of um, isolation on the mental health front as well. Um, I had undiagnosed OCD since um, my early teens and didn't really have the language for it when I was in Australia but I knew that neurologically and um, behaviorally there was a lot that was different about me compared to um, a lot of of the people around me um and all of that is just compounded when you're in this environment where the culture and social behavior is so different right um and then to make things worse um australia is also where in the middle of my degree um, one of my attempts at like socializing with my uh, classmates and peers um, wound up in an act of sexual assault. Um, there was drinking involved and um, it obviously left me very confused and conflicted about the entire thing because essentially the first message that my whole body took away from that was but I was trying to fit in and be one of you. I was trying to you know, show you that I can adapt and that I won't stand out like a sore thumb. So why then was I still at the receiving end of this act? Um, so it would be easy to sort of just say that the reason I switched careers was because something so traumatizing happened to me in the wildlife conservation space that I had to sort of just shift and do something else. But I think the larger conversation is that while my heart is still with wildlife conservation and still wishes that it could you know, be out there studying the songs of humpback whales and just decoding those, um, I think what feels like a more urgent task at hand is sitting down with human beings and making them ask themselves why they interact with each other the way they do or why they expect from each other the things that they do because clearly it's not biological to you know have these expectations of each other it's just not I refuse to believe that anyone thinks that men are biologically wired a certain way and women are a certain thing and so on and so forth because I have reached a point where I don't think you can use nature as an argument against me. I've seen what we are capable of doing and the way we are capable of treating each other. So why we live in this culture that conflates intimacy for sex and intimacy for romance and sex for romance or it, it just it it blows my mind. I do not understand it because... Till date, there is more intimacy for me in the experiences that I had underwater, where the fish would either learn to trust me or they would just learn my habits and, you know, come to that corner of the boat. because they knew that divers were coming to the water and would spend some time by the boat just playing with them before we went to see the actual shipwreck. So like there would always be this um, bunch of sergeant fish just hanging out by uh, the back of our um, boat and they were never getting fed. So it's not like they came up to, before anyone says, right? Because we're so used to people saying, oh, they probably just came for food. No, nobody was feeding them. They just wanted to hang out and play before we left for our dive. Um, I heard like, We've seen um, people develop strong bonds with dolphins, with whales, with um, octopus. It's just, it's just the way the world works. I think the kind of curiosity that I experienced as a child um, about the world around me, which I was lucky enough that the adults didn't uh, you know, um, dismiss or um, try and beat out of me in any way, Um, is a curiosity I've seen in the animal world as well, even when you're engaging with adult animals. Um, They want to sort of reach out and get a little touch of what you're wearing and why you're wearing it. And what does it feel like if they also wear it? Um, And what are you eating? And can they eat it? And will you eat what they're eating? Um, And I think that is a better understanding of intimacy. I don't understand why we think of intimacy as so... um, inherently sexual or romantic all the time because there is a greater sense of intimacy in saying that I recognize that this environment may be dangerous for you, but I'm going to do what I can to look after you anyway because you've earned my trust. Or, you know, um, you've consistently been here and you haven't started any chaos, so I will let you into my home. Um, And I think... I think that is just something that is very hard for me to process, even to this day, that animals have looked at me and made me feel like they are aware of how much power they might hold in that moment, but are choosing to not use that power unless they absolutely need to to protect themselves, while humans in my immediate spaces have used their own powers for so much less. Why? I think that is something that just became so evident, evident to me when I experienced what I experienced in Australia, because it made me sit down and ask myself, would the same thing have happened to me in exactly the same way if I was also a white kid who had always lived in Australia and then went to that university? Or did it specifically happen to me because I was a brown outsider? Did it specifically happen to me because I was one of the, I was one of three openly queer people in that entire campus? a full campus and we were three queer people and there were no queer events in the city there was absolutely no like queer openly queer population in the entire city that you could connect with or build any kind of bond with so again you're this vulnerable marginalized identity that just has this unwanted spotlight on you nonstop. um and yeah i think i think it just made me sit with so many heavy questions about what would life have been like If I had been any other identity in that moment, would this white person have seen me the same way? Would he have used his power against me in the same way? Would he have even had power in the situation then? Um, And I think those questions then made me come back home to India and wonder what power looks like in my immediate environments and what Um, intimacy looks like in those spaces how do we take responsibility for each other's safety and for each other's um, integration into new environments and new spaces which then made me very jaded and frustrated with some of the workspaces that I'd been in when I was in conservation so I think that's how all of that just started bleeding into each other and turning into this very large conversation of why do we just not look after each other because the animal world asks for so less, all it's saying is don't mess up my routine, don't mess up the rules I have for myself, because that's what keeps me safe. And if you do that much, I will show you the ropes and show you how to make it work, right? I'm sure you've experienced this too, especially because you work with primates so heavily, and their behaviors will also be so, so close to so many of these subjects where, um, like, food becomes a a shared experience it's not necessarily something that they will just take from you and deprive you of right there's always something left for everyone in the in the community as well care is just something that is so natural to share and build together community is something that is so natural something that we build together um how we engage with that community and what role we play in that community also is such a natural part of growing up and and discovering yourself so it's it's still so jarring to me that we can be so individualistic in the human world and say oh you know self-care and you're responsible for yourself and you can't keep blaming everything on your community or expect things from other people no you can interdependence is very natural it's how we're all supposed to be it's if if tiny you know fish the size of my fingernails can try to teach me that then why should I listen to some arrogant human being who thinks that reading five papers has made them an expert on anyone's behavior um yeah so there's just I think that's just what led to the shift then and it's yeah, it's just been a lot because um, being back in the city and being back in such a um, richly human environment means that I have lost access to a lot of my stillness and my calm. Um, you know, that, that means that I experience my um, OCD with so much more intensity in these spaces than I ever did when I was surrounded by animals. Yeah. Um, I have lost touch with a lot of my emotions, I think, because I, it's so, it was so much easier for me to cry and go through the motions of my feelings when I was in an environment that asked me so respectfully to be in touch with my body. You know, um, This happened in Australia as well, where um, when things did go uh, badly for me, when I was in my room, when I was in my classes, I was just a machine. I didn't talk about it I didn't think about it there was no um, emotional expression at all and the first time that I broke was when um, I went we we had a, a coral project and I was in the water the second I had my scuba gear on and I went in the water and I realized nobody could hear me and nobody was reading my facial expressions and and nobody was in a situation where they could use that information against me And I just had the coral reef and and the fish around me the first time I cried. And it was just maddening because I could just see everyone around me collecting data and just going about it because that's what they had to do. And all I could feel was everything that I'd been escaping for those last like two-ish months. And I just cried in the water. And um, in the distance, we heard a pod of... um, come whales pass us, because they were on their way um, north um, for their migrations. <sighs> uh, and, uh, yeah, it just, again, this is going to sound very silly and spiritual, probably, or even naive. But in that moment, it just felt like the water was telling me that I was going to figure it out and I was going to be okay. You know, it just it just felt like for the first time, someone was telling me that they had my back. And uh, so that I think is still a very strong memory for me.
1: I don't even know where to begin because there's so much that you brought up just now. I mean, it's not at all naive or silly by any measure to feel that strongly uh, when you're in these spaces because, yeah, it is at the end of the day, it is where you get to be entirely yourself. And there is also that aspect of performance where, when we're continuously surrounded by people in any environment, whether we're in the field, we're in a classroom, we're in the city, you are constantly performing a version of yourself. And whether the performance is of someone being, um, A heterosexual cis identifying person, whether the performance is uh, being neurotypical or being entirely put together or not being phased by anything that's happening around you, or whether the performance is coming across far um, far more macho than you really are or need to be, all of that goes away when it's just you and your study system and i think we it's um i think the reason why both of us are also getting as emotional as we are through this conversation is also having the space to discuss the need for those kind of spaces, because I think a lot of people do talk about generally feeling that serenity and that bliss and that connect with nature and that it just generally is a happier space to be in, but that is an oversimplification and there is so much more to it. And it actually provides that safe space, even when you're not in a safe space. So, um, so yeah, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I think another thing that you brought up, um, which is so important, and I feel perhaps we're doing this a little better now than when you and I first forayed into this field together, which is just the question of representation, right? The fact that we didn't have queer people in the field to turn to. We didn't have role models. We didn't have examples. There was absolutely no evidence of um, how we identifying individuals could exist in a field like this. And so outside of just the internal and personal want and need to be associated with the field, we couldn't just look at someone and say, okay, if they could do it, maybe we can too. So, um, and even now, I think we generally have some conversations about where people in STEM, in the spaces of academia itself, and within the, within the wildlife space, it's still quite meagre, very few examples, and the few that exist are uh, only accessible to the urban elite or to those who follow the right pages on Instagram perhaps but there's still no real discourse about it and not having that representation not knowing that there are others like you in this field when you're trying so hard to just to just be a part of it um, it's it can be quite uh, disheartening it can be it can break you and like you were saying, just make you feel so much more alien than maybe you actually are. Um, What are your thoughts on some of those matters of representation? Because I know we've had certain discussions about how queerness also may play into the kind of research questions you ask, or the kind of study systems you choose, or um, how maybe the absence of having queer researchers around you might also affect the way in which you work with communities or uh, the way in which you interpret the academic papers you're reading. So what was that like for you in those times? Like just if we could delve into that a bit more, the fact that we just didn't know of other people like us in the field.
0: I think it did make a lot of the um, classroom learning... uh, very frustrating and unemotional and and I really hope that things have largely changed um, now from what they were back when I was still in classrooms but academia had this way of making you feel like the more of your humanity you could leave behind the better you could be in those spaces right the more um, um factual and no nonsense and more accurately would be considered in those spaces, which again boggles my mind because how are we defining learning and observation based on one specific form of data alone? How is emotion and feeling not a part of that learning as well? Um, And of course, I think going from learning with um, trained environmentalists or trained um, wildlifers in India to then learning from indigenous communities who have no academic um, like uh, tools or or language and they're just sort of defining it from their own um, lived experience. I think that showed me how much of a difference there is in reading a situation based on what you've read in a book versus Reading a situation based on how it actually made you feel in that moment. Um, And I'm not saying that um, one is completely better than the other, even though you can clearly hear my um, bias (laughs) towards lived experiences. But I think think lived experiences need to be at the forefront of how we learn and how we process um, a lot of the um, situations or experiences around us as well. And when we talk about representation, I don't think it's enough to really say that we need more um, queer people or neurodivergent people or Pahujan people in this sector because. Again, this may be a bit of a biased thing to say, but I believe that queer people and neurodivergence and bahujans are already the people who are very, very intensely drawn towards studying the environment or being in creative spaces. So we're already there. We're already in these spaces where we're already um, conducting research and studying what the full potential of humans understanding the environment can look like. I just think that we need to we need to prioritize lived experience more and make room for people to use, to not see those biases as just something that they need to so harshly control and write out of their language because I don't think it's ever possible for us to completely lose the biases that we have. But instead to use those biases to articulate the experiences that you have had or whatever you are observing around you, while also then being upfront about the biases that drive you and and um, have turned you into the person that you are. So we can be cognizant of what it is that we are bringing to um, the forefront when we are processing these pieces of information. And then to be um, respectful of each other's biases when we have these conversations also, I think is what helps because to just restrict the conversation of representation to numbers and say that, oh, we need more queer people to have queer representation in this space. Um, It's a lot of pressure on those individuals as well. You're taking a few individuals and demanding that they represent an entire community filled of so many different experiences. When I also feel like that's not how We expect science to work anyway, we don't expect a comical few to represent the experiences of many. We are constantly working towards understanding what category of experiences is missing from that particular study or what um, factors have affected the way we've processed that particular study. We are continuously talking about how a sample is um, maybe flawed or maybe limited to a certain category or a certain kind of experiences, etc. It's part of the entire experience to say, okay, I've heard 10 voices on the subject. I'm going to need more because there are another 10 who have had one slight change in their lived experience and that tiny change can also make such a difference with the way they talk and the way they communicate or the way they process data and share it with the world. Um, Me being Bahujan does not mean that I can single-handedly articulate the experiences of every Bahujan in this space. There are so many other um, lenses to look at, so many other um, perspectives to bring into the picture and the growth of science has always been about all those perspectives sort of finding their way together and gently challenging each other or challenging themselves and learning together and coming one step closer towards having a slightly more confident opinion of the world but never really saying that this is it this is 100% confident unbeatable um, logic no flaws here cannot be contested ever so yeah I think I think just being more aware of who we are as individuals and the communities that raised us, the communities that influenced us, who and what makes us who we are today. Um, And being very aware of that when we do work with people who are even slightly different from us, because that tension or that early um, awkwardness also influences a lot of the conversation and the way we um, understand each other's uh, lives is, is... Crucial because science without that political understanding would just be very very empty, and it would be a pity for us to have dedicated so much wor- uh, work and time and resources towards a science that we deliberately removed emotion and politics from.
1: No, you're absolutely right. There, I mean, the, there are so many people who are already there in this space and it's not a matter of the fact that people are not here. But I think I also asked you a kind of impossible question there. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think it just lead, points us repeatedly in the direction of currently the field is not a safe enough place for enough people to be sharing that lived experience, right? And What we find is when we go out of our way and really try to uh, provide confidentiality, anonymity, and a very buffered safe space, and only in those very sheltered environments do we realize how many of us that actually are in the field. And I think literally every workspace, every NGO, every organization, every institution I've been a part of, I always spend the initial few days there or months there thinking that I'm the only queer person there. And I'm constantly testing the waters, wondering um, how expressive I can be about my identity in that area. And the longer I spend there, the more I realize through, you know, subtle signaling and those kind of things between other members and peers and colleagues that there are more. Right, everyone's just in a different stage of coming out, or still testing the waters, or gauging who they can and cannot trust. And the issue is that we are in a system where there is still enough risk involved with coming out and being open that ultimately the visibility doesn't exist. So, you know, the fact that there are definitely a lot of queer people in the wildlife spaces and you are absolutely right I think it is also the kind of person you end up being the amalgamation of those qualities and traits and the fact that queer identifying individuals also tend to be the people who have spent a huge chunk of their life really thinking about who they are right because I feel like a lot of from a very young age, we are constantly asking ourselves these very deep questions about our own identities. And we're reflecting on all of those themes um, in ways that a lot of others who still, are, you know, who are, are cishet and have been brought up that way. And this society and the structure works and fits because they are genuinely, you um, that is genuinely how they identify, they've not had to go through those processes uh, so early on. So I think the fact that a lot of queer identifying people are engaging with that actively from a young age also means that we end up discovering that we... Like these spaces, we are interested in ecology and wildlife. We want to pursue those ideas and be another step of misfit in some way, because it's even though it's becoming increasingly mainstream and uh, popular, it's still an unusual career to have. And when you add in layers of privilege and caste and gender, uh, you know the people who are naturally attracted to this field are faced with a varying number of obstacles of whether they can get into the field or not. So if you um, you're already considered a bit of a misfit or a bit of a rebel, if you're trying to go down a path where you want to pursue a free career in wildlife, and then you add on your personal identity to that, and then it add, like the risks are compounded because we're still in a field which has systems and structures that are not fully safe for queer people. And um, so, you know, so a lot of the people, even I've been talking to on the podcast, you know, we, you notice that those who can openly talk about their queer experience tend to be from a certain bracket of privilege, right? Because uh, those are the only kind of people who are able to be out and talk and share that lived experience without it severely compounding their risks or because they have enough support systems or have enough financial backing or independence to fall back on if something did go wrong and I think a large proportion of who are identifying people in the field are still not in that space and the trade-off does not work in their favor just yet so, um, so yeah, I think what you mentioned about just the fact that it's not so much about representation in that are there people who are queer identifying in the field but it's more a matter of are we creating spaces which are safe enough for queer identifying people in the field because we'd never know they exist otherwise um and i'm sure this is true for you know many different careers and fields but of course i'm speaking from my lived experience of um having been in this space um But Tarisha, I also wanted to ask you again, a little bit more about just what has it been like right now for you? Because we've spoken about the fact that there has been a huge opportunity cost, right? The fact that for multiple reasons in a step-by-step way, everything kind of came together to reach a point where you said that, okay, I don't think I can be, continue being in this field right now in this capacity because they feel like it seems like there are larger problems and other things that i need to tackle and deal with and perhaps i can use this skill set of mine in this way right now um so has has that brought in some kind of peace or catharsis for you in any way the fact that even though you've had to put a pin in your work with the wildlife and the marine sector for now, Um, has it allowed you to do some of those things that you felt you were lacking and missing from your human communities and spaces in those years?
0: Yes and no. Um, I think... I think, of course, for me, there was a lot of pain and grief in um, taking a step back and reconsidering what I was going to do with the rest of my life Um, and recognizing that I may not get to build the kind of relationship with, say, you know, a specific pod of humpback whales like I once dreamed I I would be able to. But um, I think the way my brain has sort of tried to make sense of that grief and loss is by saying that if i study if i did study the songs of the humback whales would that benefit the humback whales in any way or would that just make me happy it would make me happy but when i think about the work that i'm doing with people now um and i ask myself the same question Um, Am I doing that work because it would benefit the people or because it would benefit me? The answer is both, Um, but primarily the fact that it would benefit the other people because, and I think this is where I want to bring it back to the queerness thing as well, where we think that, um, or rather I'll be more specific, um, cis-het people very often think, privileged people very often think that, you know, people from marginalized communities like um, queer groups or trans people or Bahujan people, um, are the ones who are going through a lot and are struggling, and that's true. But I don't think those groups of privileged identities understand how much pity and concern we also carry for them, because we know what a life of fluid relationships and free-flowing intimacy looks like. We know what a life without box. And labels can look like, and we know what it's like to actually put community above the individual. Um, And we know that privileged people have lived a life where they've been conditioned so hard that they think that they can only experience very limited. Forms of affection and companionship over the course of their lives. And they are the ones who are truly experiencing way too much loss that they've still not um, entirely processed or contextualized. Um, so I feel that pain for them. I recognize that there is a lot of work that needs to be done in their own circles for them to finally feel like they can access that kind of connection in their spaces or access a sense of community that is more nuanced than just, you know, oh, we're we're from the same caste or we grew up in the same building. um, Community is so much more than that. Um, And I just think that I am processing my grief by continuously reminding myself that the work I'm doing now is for more than just my unbridled joy of decoding a song. (laughs) This is work that needs to be done because if people do not do internal work, if they do not learn what intimacy and community look like for themselves, they will never ever learn to be at peace with their environment or have any kind of bond with it. Um, I think people are incredibly unhappy and incredibly um, lost with the sheer level of autopilot they're expected to live in to to survive a corporate capitalist system day in and day out. And I think that just reflects very heavily in their inability to sit still and connect with the environment, just like I was before I ever experienced a bond with nature. And um, I just think that if we are ever going to live in a world where all of nature can see us as safe enough to be invited into its homes, then we need to actually know what it looks like to build a home and live in it first.
1: I'm also really just so grateful for the work that you are currently doing. Um, I know that it's been a very heavy, very difficult decision for you to have made uh, to make that shift. And I know it wasn't easy. And although it also seems that in some ways it came so naturally and organically to you because this is what these are the kind of conversations you've been having with others and also with yourself for so long. and in some ways it's just been truly incredible to see that take shape and to have had a little bit of context for it from knowing you from all for all these years. Um, and I do think that you are creating a lot of those, safe spaces inadvertently through the content that you're putting out there um and i do know that there is there are a fair amount of um ecologists and wildlifers especially of our generation who also follow you and your work and uh i think find topics and spaces to relate to uh, even there so um, you're very right in saying that what you're doing is benefiting uh those who are part of your audience and part of your consumer base um so yeah there's there is a lot you are doing and I do think that uh the people who are engaging with your content are also gaining a lot from you and are able to connect better with themselves because of it and are largely better off because of it and I know I have also benefited so much from the stuff that you put out into the world so um so yeah, <laughs> thank you for doing what you do i think it's uh, it's it's really incredible stuff and i think even through this conversation you know it's so palpable how much love and passion you have for everything that you have had to put up in and that you've had to hit pause on and so it doesn't um, i don't think for me it's a question at all of do you think you would ever get back into the realm of wildlife? Uh, I think that answer is quite obvious. And uh, <laughs> it's just a matter of in what capacity that is going to be, right? Um, I don't think there's any doubt about it whatsoever because you clearly continue to draw inspiration from that space and you hold so, it holds so much value for you. Um, and at the end of the day, I guess it, it also led you to where you are now. Um, And I really hope that, you know, you manage to kind of marry the two of what you're doing, because what you're doing is so important. And what you're doing is also exactly what is lacking from our spaces in my life. And it's directly combating a lot of systemic issues that we also face in this field. And while what you're doing right now is not targeted at a certain field or at a certain community and it's generally being put out there into the public eye um I hope that you know the right spaces and the right people draw inspiration from it and learn about what exactly is missing and what we need to do to make people feel seen and recognized and just safe um because clearly that is a theme and a topic that we continuously return to we should not have to be in a space in a field where you have to pick between your passion your skills your talent your interest and just being safe uh, so we should not have to be in those situations so i think i mean talking to you always gives me a lot of hope for those reasons i think another another question i wanted to ask you was uh right now you're not actively engaging with the wildlife space in a career capacity but i do know that you still do engage with little bits of wildlife and nature all around you continuously um and you've also kind of opened your eyes to urban biodiversity in the last few years and just you know done your little bit in reconnecting with whatever's right in your house or right outside your door um so how have you been doing that? Or How have you kind of kept that alive for yourself while you work on queer so affirming sex ed?
0: I think, uh, honestly, for me, it just feels like now that I know what's out there and what I can have and experience for the rest of my life, um, being back in an urban space where suddenly my connect to nature is so restricted and controlled my entire body is just screaming for connection you know Um, like you know this I've always been terrified of spiders and I hate um, insects like unless they're at a reasonable distance right Um, but I think now I'm in this space where Even when I see insects, my entire body is just like, no, don't want you in my space. But also, what is that thing you're doing? (laughs) And very organically, there's a certain sense of um, curiosity that takes over because my body's just like, okay, we'll take what connection we can find. If it's a spider hanging out in the gym and just being really weird in front of my treadmill, then we're going to stare at that and take that connection also. If it's the neighbor's dog just running in circles and acting really strange in a way that I've never seen before, then I want to know the answer for that also. Um, So I think that's what it is. It's just um, there's this very strong desire to connect with life in a way that um human structures don't necessarily allow me to and that's i think that's making me see more depth in um urban biodiversity as well that i didn't um, always see before like i'm seeing birds that i always seen even when i was a kid and i would notice them even when i was a kid but there is a stronger willingness now to patiently observe their behavior and actually see what they're up to and not just categorize them as, you know, pretty bird who's being cute outside my window versus annoying bird that's being a pest outside my window. Like that language has started to change my, because my body is just like, I just want to know if this is going to be a thing where you come to my window every morning. Why is the time-specific? Is it related to the fact that I'm having coffee and breakfast right now or is it unrelated? Is it something to do with the weather? Is it because my dogs are here and you're fascinated by them? You know, so all these questions have come up and I think that is just um, a very exciting way to um, go back to finding some kind of connection with the environment again and to feel like these trees outside my building as well um, can hold forth for me and and give me some kind of coverage or or colour and and peace um, in a way that I used to once believe I would only ever find in the sea Um, and I think that is just slowly calming my system down because it's making me feel like the environment is doing everything in its power to just make me feel grounded again.
1: I'm so happy that we literally have the non-human world everywhere and this is of course increasingly becoming a pet peeve of my own through my own PhD research where I'm just trying to decentralize people from every space and everything and we've uh, we're trying to even reconstruct the language and vocabulary of saying human and non-human because that's still so anthropocentric but There is literally so much diversity no matter where we are and I am so happy that it's there for you and it's holding you and that you're letting it in and I hope you continue to do that until we can go on another dive together and kind of re-explore that space because I know we're both craving it so much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is, yeah. Thanks, Tanisha. This has just been such a roller coaster of emotions as well, this conversation with you. And I feel like we could easily keep talking. And there's so much yeah. that we've just quickly hit upon and, you know, moved on to other topics. And I know that there's a lot more there. And maybe we'll we'll come back and maybe we'll revisit some of these things. And, but I just want to thank you so much for bringing a lot of these things to the spotlight and just talking about it just articulating it even in a small way I think makes such a huge difference because some of these things is what I was craving and lacking from a young age and over the last few years of meeting a lot of other people in the field whether they are queer identifying or not you just realize what a huge uh, mismatch in lived experiences and perspectives and just perceptions of what work is needed in this space and in our systems and what the world actually looks like for different kinds of people and when you're all trying to fit into the same box of being a wildlifer. I think those are conversations that were sorely missing and I'm really glad to be able to have some of them and so I am really grateful for you to just be sharing that lived experience because like you were saying, it's not easy. There's a lot of risk involved. It requires so much revisiting of painful and bittersweet pasts and presents. And that's not something that I take lightly at all. So thank you for doing that.
0: Thank you for having me too. I think... uh this has also been a good experience for me because I don't think I would be able to articulate this with as much ease um, with someone I had just met or with someone I didn't have this kind of rapport with. So us having like a decade's worth of understanding of each other and understanding of how to sort of do this, again, this intricate dance of intimately understanding each other um, is something that takes a lot of time to build. (laughs) And uh, I think that's what made it easier for me to also tap into these parts of my head and really see how I feel about a lot of things.
1: Thanks for tuning in. This series will continue next Sunday. If you are a queer identifying individual in the field of ecology or conservation, do consider joining the Indian Queer Wildlifeers Circle. To be a part of this group, one that respects your anonymity and keeps your identity confidential, please write in to me at thethingaboutwildlife at gmail.com or DM me on any of our socials. We are currently a group that is over 80 members strong and we are still growing. Remember, you are not alone and we are all in this together. Thanks for listening.